and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, No Four Ways About It, Nagarjuna's Tetralemma. Life is full of yes-no questions. Will you marry me? Is that new movie worth seeing? Do you want fries with that? But sometimes things are more complicated. If you are asked whether the Godfather movies are worth seeing, you shouldn't just say yes or no, but yes and no. The first two are essential viewing, the third one a disappointment. In other cases, the answer is neither yes nor no. If you are asked whether the fourth Godfather movie is worth seeing, the right answer would be to challenge the question itself. No such film has so far been made. The same is true in philosophy. Frequently, philosophers straightforwardly argue for a positive or negative answer to a given question. Yes, we do have free will. No, God doesn't exist. But perhaps just as often, they argue for a more nuanced conclusion. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologiae is a masterclass in saying both yes and no. The scholastic format lends itself to posing questions that can be understood in more than one way, so that in one sense they should be answered affirmatively, in another sense negatively. As for saying neither yes nor no, a standard bit of philosophical repertoire nowadays is the identification of so-called category mistakes. If you're asked whether the soul is located in the brain, you might reply by saying that the very way the question is posed is mistaken because the soul is immaterial and has no spatial location at all. Despite the fact that these are standard philosophical moves, the philosophical study of logic has usually contented itself with studying the simpler yes or no situation. Indeed, a fundamental rule of classical logic, beginning with Aristotle, is the so-called law of the excluded middle. It states that for any given proposition, either it is true or its negation is true. Either the godfather is worth seeing or it is not. There is no third option. You might wonder how Aristotle could have overlooked the two more complex possibilities yes and no, and neither yes nor no. After all, Aristotle was himself fond of the yes and no answer, and in fact helped inspire Aquinas' use of that tactic. But he could defend the law of the excluded middle by saying that it only applies to meaningful propositions with clearly defined terms. It will hold only so long as we are not making a category mistake, like assuming the soul has spatial location, and not speaking too imprecisely, as when we ask about the quality of all Godfather movies collectively, instead of taking them one by one. This solution involves limiting the range of statements to which our logic is applied. But there is another possibility. We could expand our logic to take in the more nuanced possibilities. This is what we find in Buddhism, and in particular in Nagarjuna. In the past couple of episodes, we've already seen him using the prasanga technique to undermine the pretensions of dogmatic philosophical systems. His strategy is to set out an exhaustive and exclusive list of all the logically possible positions concerning some topic, and then show that each position is untenable. Typically, his list of options has four, not two, possibilities. This is his doctrine of the four alternatives, or chachashkoti, usually translated as the tetralemma. Nagarjuna takes it to be definitive of Buddha's philosophy. He writes, Everything is such as it is, not such as it is, both such as it is and not such as it is, and neither such as it is nor not such as it is. 
That is the Buddha's teaching. As Nagarjuna says here, the tetralemma is not original with him. It appears in earlier reports on the Buddha's teachings, but he does deploy it with unprecedented rigor and relentlessness. In the formulation we just quoted, Nagarjuna simply lays out the four options. That isn't the whole method, though. Typically, what he does is to give us the options and then refute all four. One can easily imagine Aristotle, or Aquinas, raising a quizzical eyebrow at this. It's one thing to say that a philosophical question can receive no clear yes or no answer because it is insufficiently precise. It's another to rule out yes, no, both, and neither. We find a good example of this in the very opening of the verses on the middle way, as if Nagarjuna is modeling for us how he will be arguing in the entire work. Beginning as he means to go on, Nagarjuna says, At nowhere and at no time can entities ever exist by originating out of themselves, from others, from both themselves and others, or from the lack of causes. Later on, he applies the tetralemma to his own doctrine of emptiness, writing, Nothing could be asserted to be empty, not empty, both empty and not empty, and neither empty nor not empty. They are asserted only for the purpose of provisional understanding. As we've seen, he seeks here to avoid self-refutation by refusing to endorse any philosophical thesis that would be on a par with other philosophical doctrines. If someone misunderstands and supposes that middle-way Buddhism is a philosophy to which they might give their allegiance, the snake that is the prasanga method, will coil itself around them. Because the tetralemma is so central to Nagarjuna's style of philosophy, and because it seems to flout the rules of logic as we know them, many scholars have tried to understand it. In this episode we will, appropriately enough, discuss four such attempts. The great Polish Indologist Stanisław Szeja was the first to appreciate that the tetralemma presents a worthwhile logical problem. He was a student of Wukasiewicz, the Polish logician who breathed new life into medieval Aristotelian syllogistic with the use of modern formal methods. It seems that Scheer wanted to do something similar for Nagarjuna. He thought the tetralemma could be understood within the framework of classical propositional logic. Thus, he took Nagarjuna's options to be that a given disputed statement is either true, not true, both true and not true, or neither true nor not true. So P, not P, P and not P, or not P and not not P. But this interpretation is unsatisfactory and for two reasons. For one thing, the third option, that a given proposition is both true and not true, is a straightforward contradiction. It doesn't represent a genuine alternative at all, so Nagarjuna would be displaying considerable confusion by bothering to refute this as if it were a meaningful option. Imagine someone taking trouble to refute the claim that there both is and is not a fourth Godfather movie. For another thing, on Scheer's reading, the fourth option is equivalent to the third. That's because two negations cancel out, something overlooked in the first Godfather movie by Sonny Carleone when he says that the FBI don't respect nothing. Thus, to use another example from that film, if I made the admittedly rather strange assertion that Luca Brasi both sleeps with the fishes and does not sleep with the fishes, that would be exactly the same as saying that he does not sleep with the fishes and does not not sleep with the fishes. Some scholars have nevertheless embraced this reading of Nagarjuna and triumphantly declared that Nagarjuna rejects the law of non-contradiction, sometimes going on to add that this is what distinguishes Eastern philosophy from Western philosophy, 
adding for good measure that it also proves that Eastern philosophy is essentially mystical in orientation. But this extravagant line of interpretation falls at the first hurdle, given that Nagarjuna endorses the law of non-contradiction quite explicitly. In the midst of one of his refutations, he says that nobody can perform an action that is both existent and non-existent, for they are contradictory. Where can existence and non-existence coexist? Fortunately, there are more plausible ways of understanding what Nagarjuna is up to. One has been suggested by Richard Robinson. He proposed that the tetralemma is not about whether propositions are true or false, but about whether a certain property belongs to a certain class of objects. This would bring the project closer to Aristotle's logic, since he was especially concerned with statements like, all humans are rational. That is, the property of rationality belongs to every member of the class of humans. As evidence, Robinson could point to those lines that supposedly summarize the Buddha's teaching, everything is such as it is, not such as it is, and so on. Likewise, in the other case we mentioned, where Nagarjuna says that everything is self-caused, or everything is caused by another, and so on. The advantage of this reading is that the third option will no longer be contradictory. Let's see why by using a simple example, having a color. On Robinson's reading, the tetralemma here would go as follows. First, maybe everything is blue. Seems unlikely, but it does make sense. Second, maybe nothing is blue. Again, this is comprehensible, though it would thwart the traditional advice given to brides about what to wear on their wedding day. Third, everything is blue and not blue. This may still sound contradictory, but it needn't be. It could mean that some things are blue and some not. When Billie Holiday asked, am I blue, she was wondering which category she fell into. Fourth and finally, everything is both blue and not blue. This looks more problematic, yet again it sounds like a straightforward contradiction. But Robinson thinks this too could be a meaningful option. The idea would be that if anything at all existed, it would be both blue and not blue, but we know it is impossible to be both blue and not blue, so on this option we could infer that nothing exists. Unfortunately, this reading does not fit the text very well. Nagarjuna gives us no warning that the subject of the third statement, the everything in everything is blue and not blue, needs to be split up and understood as a claim about some things that are blue and some other things that are not blue. Also, the whole basis of Robinson's reading is that the tetralemma deals solely with classes of things and not individuals. But if that is right, then Nagarjuna would be unable to apply his favorite argumentative tool to counter one-off dogmatic claims about particular objects. If I said, Billie Holiday really is blue, just listen to her sing, he would have to shrug his shoulders and agree. We therefore prefer the interpretation given by K. N. Jayatileke, a Sri Lankan expert in early Buddhist logic and epistemology. This turns on two insights. First, the oppositions considered by Nagarjuna might have to do with opposite properties rather than sheer negations, for instance, black and white rather than black and not black. Second, Nagarjuna might be exploiting the idea that a part of something can have a property that the whole thing lacks. Giatileke gives the following example of a tetralemma, A is east of B, or A is west of B, or A is both east and west of B, or A is neither east nor west of B. 
Here again, the third possibility, A is both east and west of B, looks contradictory at first glance, but it isn't. Perhaps B is a point, and A is an east-west running line that goes through that point. So A could be a line of latitude and B a city it runs through. Then part of line A would indeed be east of B, and another part west of B. No contradiction arises at all. What about the neither alternative? Again, A could be a line and B a point, but this time the whole line is north of the point, as the line of latitude running through Boston is north of New York. That line of latitude is neither east nor west of New York. Very clever, you might say, but isn't Jayatilike cheating by using these unusual properties of east and west? Not really. We can also apply it in a simpler case like the case of color. First, some things are wholly white, like a piece of chalk. Second, other things are wholly non-white, that is to say a wholly different color like a lump of coal, which is wholly black. Third, however much it might frustrate Mick Jagger, not everything is just painted black. Some things are white and non-white, like a zebra. Finally, certain things are neither white nor non-white. Why? For a reason we mentioned at the outset of this episode, it could just be a category mistake to apply the concept of color at all. The line of latitude running through Boston, for instance, is neither white nor black, nor any other color. Giaitilike's reading seems promising, especially since it makes the tetralemma obviously applicable in philosophical contexts. When, at the beginning of his verses on the middle way, Nagarjuna raises the various options about whether things are self-caused or not, his reasoning would go as follows. First, perhaps every object is wholly self-caused and spontaneous. Some theologians have thought this about God, for instance. Second, perhaps every object is caused by something else, like a movie which was made by the director, the actors, the crew, and so on. Third, things may be caused both by themselves and by others, like an animal which is generated by its parents but can then make its own limbs move. Finally, things may be neither self-caused nor caused by another because causation may just not apply to them. The number four might be like this. All of these are respectable philosophical positions concerning causation. So, to show that the concept of causation is empty, each of them needs to be refuted, which is exactly what Nagarjuna does. But we're not out of the woods yet. Having made sense of the tetralemma itself, we now need to ask how Nagarjuna could sensibly formulate an exhaustive list of four logical options and then deny all of them. Imagine someone denying that a movie is good, denying that it is bad, denying that parts of it are good and other parts bad, and finally, denying that it is a movie for which questions of good and bad fail to arise in any normal sense, perhaps a cult film that is so bad that it's good. Bizarre though this may seem, it is exactly what Nagarjuna does with his prasanga method, listing all logical possibilities and then rejecting them, even the negative ones. What is Nagarjuna playing at here? It seems obvious that when he rejects all four options of a tetralemma, the rejection involved must be a rather special one. For help, we can turn to a fourth interpretation of Nagarjuna, which has been put forward by Bibal Matila and defended more recently by Jan Vesterhof. He alludes to an ancient Indian distinction originally made in grammatical contexts between two kinds of negation, called paryudasa and prasadya. The first turns one noun into another noun, like adding in to vertebrate to get invertebrate. The second is like the not in I do not say I will come to your house. 
An important difference is that the negation of a noun still involves a positive assertion, as when I say, the snail is an invertebrate. This is not so when I negate the verb. If I tell you, I do not say, I will come to your house, then perhaps I will come after all. I might just be unwilling to commit myself until I know what movie you'll be showing. The distinction was used elsewhere in ancient Indian philosophy, notably in the Mimamsa theory of ritual. How, they wondered, should we interpret a prohibition on performing a certain ritual act? Don't slaughter a goat might mean that you should slaughter a non-goat. That is, you should indeed slaughter something, a cow or a chicken, just not a goat. Or it might tell you to refrain from any sacrificial act at all. The idea of prasadya negation, where you negate the verb, works nicely with the aforementioned phenomenon of category errors. When I deny that Godfather 4 is a good movie, I am not saying it is a non-good movie. It doesn't exist, so it isn't a movie at all. And there are other cases that call for prasadya negation without involving category errors. Consider the famous leading question, have you stopped beating your wife? If a lawyer put this question to a married man in a trial, the man would presumably want to challenge the presupposition behind the question. Yet the question is not a category mistake. As a husband, he is indeed someone who could engage in domestic abuse, as unfortunately happens all the time. We might take Nagarjuna to be engaging in this sort of non-committal negation when he rejects all four options in a tetralemma. Since failing to assert a proposition is different from asserting the opposite, Nagarjuna can withhold assent from all four alternatives. He wants to show that each alternative involves a concept with no purchase on reality. As he would want us to point out, this has a precedent in the Buddha's own practice. We've mentioned before that the Buddha sometimes fell silent when questions were pressed upon him. Asked whether the world is eternal, he did not answer, nor would he speak when asked if the world is not eternal. Likewise, when asked whether the self is identical to the body or not identical. In one text, he is even silent when a series of four questions is posed, questions that have a now familiar structure. He was asked whether an enlightened being survives mortal death, does not survive death, both survives and does not survive, or neither survives nor does not survive. The Buddha's silence in the face of such demands surely does not indicate uncertainty, but a rejection of the very line of questioning. Nagarjuna's rejection of the four alternatives in a tetralemma likewise wants us to dispel our belief in the reality of the thing being talked about in all four options. Consider one last time the opening of the verses on the middle way. The first three alternatives laid out there claim that objects have some sort of cause, internal or external or mixed, while the fourth alternative denies that this is so. In refusing to agree to any of these possibilities, Nagarjuna suggests that the word cause does not refer to anything at all. It has no independent reality, no svabhava. When the dogmatic philosopher gives us a choice between self-causation and other causation, he is making us an offer we can and should refuse. This just about rounds off our look at the great Nagarjuna. You may distantly recall that when we launched this podcast series, we mentioned him to show that some ancient Indian thinkers were just obviously philosophers, and very interesting philosophers at that. Hopefully the past several episodes will have justified our enthusiasm. But 
He is such a historically and philosophically important thinker, and so difficult to interpret, that he amply deserves an interview episode to give you a further perspective on his thought. For this purpose, we've turned to the proponent of one of the four interpretations discussed in this episode, Jan Vestehoff. Now that's an offer you can't refuse. Next time on The History of Philosophy in India.